Well, hi there, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled. I tell my story of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety over seven years ago. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. Recovery touches many aspects of our lives, and often people find that when they quit drinking, seemingly unrelated parts of their lives are healed and impacted by the process. But as it turns out, the same can be true in reverse order. And this has been the experience of today's guest, Victoria, who has found that by battling a health crisis in her life, her efforts, her frustrated efforts to give up alcohol were greatly boosted by this new turn of events in her life. I am really grateful to Victoria for being here today because I know that um, she's had kind of a rough couple weeks of feeling awful and the sun came out today and she has a good day of feeling good and so with enormous gratitude in my heart that you are sharing with us today, Victoria, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thank you. Um, happy to I be love here. that your dog's my dog. started barking. <laughs> oh, for, for I a mentioned moment, before I that my dog was barking. Some oh, listeners thinking, sorry. oh my goodness. <laughs> right on cue, yes. Right on cue. <laughs> well, if nothing else, I'm safe. We've got that. I've got that going for me. <laughs> um, anyway, thank you for having me. And um, when I heard the cue music, I thought, I thought um, it, I felt like I should be folding some laundry or something because I, I often listen to your podcast when I'm doing those mundane home tasks and it gives me a chance to get some things accomplished and also get some some great insight about sobriety and hear people's stories. So I'm happy to be here. Oh, I'm grateful to have you. That's really cool. And I know I, I always listen to this podcast um, before I was on it myself. I would walk my dog and listen to it. Uh, and yeah. I just always felt like I was out walking with friends because I was always so yes. grateful for <laughs> exactly. the stories that I heard. <laughs> yes. A lot of uh, Well, a lot I'm of glad you're uh-huh here. Well, so um, let's, uh, I sort of alluded to um, to your story a little bit, but take us back a little bit, Victoria, and share with us a little bit about your relationship with alcohol and how you got to where you're at today. Okay. Um, well, I, um, when I was uh, younger, I'm, I'm 47 now, and I have, um, I have quite a bit of addiction that runs in my family. Um, but my father went into recovery when I was about 14 or 15. So I was impacted some by his drinking, but also more inspired by his recovery. He's, um, 80 now and, um, runs marathons and is just, just a complete inspiration. And, um, the alcoholism and addiction never really ran on the female side of our family. So I wasn't overly concerned. I was informed about alcoholism. But as I got older and um, went to college, um, I had a very normal relationship with alcohol. Um, I mean, I was in college, so we drank the way college kids do. And But, um, you know, I never had an urge to... Uh, go the extra mile, you know. If it was a, if it was some kind of a college party or a football game, you know, I, I, drink to what people would call excess, but it was just kind of what college kids did. I wasn't anything out of the norm, and um, 
<clears throat> so I never, I never gave much thought to my relationship with alcohol. Um, when I was in college, I started experiencing for the first time, I, I started experiencing um, some mild anxiety attacks. And I had no idea what they were. And um, they would usually be triggered by uh, something like final exams, um, or sometimes uh, conversations with my mother who lived in another part of the country. She suffered with um, de- serious depression that was untreated and undiagnosed. And um, so our conversations would be very strained. She would um, talk to me about how she hated her life and she wanted to die and there was no purpose in her living. And And I remember... I didn't even connect the dots at the time, but I remember getting off the phone with her and I would either um, feel like I couldn't catch my breath and, and have to, you know, go into another room and sort of bend over and try to get some air into my lungs. Um, Or I would go in the bathroom and vomit. And it wasn't, it wasn't a bulimia thing. It's not like I would eat a bunch. It was more just, having no idea how to cope with the feelings I was having. And I think those two things were the first expression of my unhealthy coping skills. Um, so that was, those, those were big triggers for me, but um, I learned to manage it somewhat. Um, I graduated from college, married my college sweetheart, and um, we started our our home and our family. Um, we had three kids in four years, and our drinking was really hardly even existent. Uh, we would, I didn't, I think we kept alcohol in the house, but I didn't, I didn't touch it. Um, if we were watching a football game, we'd have a beer. If we went to dinner, we'd have a glass of wine. It was, I don't remember being intoxicated for years during the time from the time I graduated until, you know, I was finished having my three kids. Um, It just, it never occurred to me to just drink. So I was pretty certain that I had escaped any kind of family curse when it came to addiction. And then um, when my youngest child was one, uh, my mother collapsed from a brain aneurysm, and she died a week later. And um, that was the first time when I was in the hospital watching her demise, um, I did have some full-on panic attacks where um, they had to give me a paper bag and medicate me to calm me down. Um, when I flew home after her passing, Um, I flew back alone. My husband had already gone ahead of me to take care of our children. So I flew home alone, and that's the first time I remember self-medicating with alcohol. I um, got extremely drunk on the plane. Um, I was in the taxi on the way home, you know, asking him to pull over. I had to vomit. I was just beside myself, and it was all because I couldn't catch my breath. I couldn't breathe. Um, so 
that was the beginning of just kind of a very slow spiral. I, um, you know, I had the three little kids. Uh, my mother's death left me with even more issues than I had with her when I was alive. She was just a very complicated woman, and I, I just, I was left tremendous amount of pain and anger um, and guilt because you're not supposed to feel that way about your mother, especially after she passes away. Um, and so at that point, I was home with the three kids. Um, my, my career has always been in fitness, so I've always been really healthy. Um, but I started, I was a runner back then, and I remember going home from a run and telling my husband, you know, he'd say, oh, how many miles did you do? And I'd say, I only got one. I used to do five. And I only got one because I can't breathe. I can't catch my breath. It felt like I had a, a belt around my ribcage. So in response to that, I started to drink. And my drinking, um, you know, suddenly I was, I was opening a bottle of wine by myself. Um, and then it got to a whole bottle of wine. And... My husband would come home and he'd say, you know, you're, you're kind of drinking a lot. And I'd say, yeah, well, that was, you know, that bottle was from yesterday. I just finished it off. And then it was, um, you know, I'd have the bottle of wine and take a couple of shots of vodka that he didn't know I had. And just, you know, it was just becoming, I could see it was becoming an issue. And um, one night I spoke to a family member who had struggled with addiction and they told me, you know, this is going to, this will not get better. I can tell you that right now. You've had something happen in your life that has triggered this addiction thing in you, and it's not going to get better. So I stopped. I calmed down. I said, you know what? I went to a psychiatrist, and I got on some anti-anxiety medication, and I went to therapy and did all the right things um, and got it back under control. And then... Um, Two years later, my husband asked for a divorce, and I kind of felt like the other shoe had dropped, uh, just completely uh, devastated at the idea of our family breaking up. Um, not so much about the marriage, because we had our problems, but the thought of our, our family breaking up was was just awful, and um that's when I started, again, self-medicating with the wine. And um, around that time is when, you know, some of the, I guess they call them brownouts or blackouts would start. And, um, you know, I would, I would get my kids to school in the morning. I, um, I had clients all day. I'd bring them home. I'd do homework. While I cooked dinner, I would start with the wine. <laughs> First time you ever heard that. Um, and it, I would just sort of sip that wine until it was time for me to go to sleep and wake up and face the next day. Um, and I started to wonder if I had a problem, you know, but it was still, it was when the whole mommy, mommy's juice and, you know, mommy needs her wine and that whole thing was coming into, into the culture. So mm -hmm. that was what women were beginning to do. You know, we were basically beginning to binge drink and call it, you know, girls happy hour, call it mommy time, me time, 
whatever, but, you know, we were drinking to excess. And so a lot of my friends were doing the same thing. Uh, And it didn't impact too many areas of my life other than um, feeling kind of hungover most mornings. (laughs) But I was in my 30s and I could shake it off. Um, So I was able to maintain that for several years. Um, I'm sure it altered my behavior. I'm sure that my children were, could tell a difference on days when I drank from days when I didn't, you know, but I was still fully functioning. Everyone was doing fine by all accounts. And um, I maintained that for several years, working, uh, drinking at night. Um, and then after about five years, I met and married my second husband. And um, we drank a lot together, but it was, we were in the world of new love and romance and it just all seemed so romantic and dramatic and sexy. And so I didn't think much about it. Um, I got pregnant shortly after we got married and, um, I never had a problem giving up drinking when I was pregnant. Um, had a very healthy pregnancy, thankfully, and had a little girl. And I thought that um, having had that time away from alcohol, that that I would, you know, be done with that phase. I call it a phase. Um, and I was, I was happy. I was. It was tough merging the families. I, my kids were coming into their teenage years, so things were getting dicey. But I thought that I was done with the drinking. And then after I stopped nursing my daughter. Um, I realized I was not done. (laughs) Um, And it it slowly progressed, as it always does. Um, It was, was, again, you know, as soon as I had finished my duties, driving kids from one activity to the next, I was home opening the wine and, you know, kind of, you know, getting everyone to, to bed and kind of snuggling the baby until she fell asleep and then having a few more drinks and hoping I could sleep through the night. And it was, I knew it was a problem. And I knew it was a big problem when um, I was home with the baby one morning and I looked at the liquor cabinet and I thought, I would really like to have a drink. And it was about 9 o'clock in the morning. And that scared me. So then I started to try all the little tricks we try, you know, um, only keep one bottle of wine in the house, uh, don't drink till after six, uh, do more yoga, drink more green juice, um, <laughs> don't drink before you go to a party, don't drink after you come home from the party, all those little things that we do, I kept trying to do. And um, I could maintain it for a period of time, and then I would always fail and end up just trashed, <laughs> not knowing how did I get here. And it was happening faster and faster with less drinks and um, the blackouts were becoming more frequent. And so I called up a friend that was in recovery and I said, I've got to talk to you before I chicken out. And um, I went and met with her and started going to meetings. It helped for a while. Um, But I had this, I kept having this desire to self-sabotage and I've, I still haven't really gotten to the bottom of that. Um, But I would just, I was the type that if I was coming up on six months, I would, I would have, even if it was one drink, I would have one drink 
the day before I was supposed to pick up my six-month chip because I couldn't, I couldn't accept success. It scared me to death. It scared me more than, than my drinking. And I, I still don't know why. I still don't know why this is part of who I am. But that's what I would do. So it did help me cut back on my drinking. Um, it, it got better for a while. There were long periods of time where I wouldn't drink. There were periods of time where I would only drink a little bit, and then I'd have an incident or two. You know, it was just, it was just playing a game for years, just years and years. This thing just on my back, you know? <laughs> um, so a couple of years ago, we moved to a different part of the country, and it was, um, it's a lot less alcohol-centered out here. Um, people are outdoors a lot more. So that part, um, my lifestyle changed a lot, and that part did make it easier to not drink as often. But I was finding that when I would drink, it was just it, the disease was still progressing, and um, I just I just couldn't really handle it very well. And if I started out, um, you know, just having a glass of wine, within a couple of weeks it would turn into me, you know, going to the grocery store with a solo cup with, you know, Perrier and vodka in it. <laughs> it just was the same stupid cycle over and over and over again. And me keeping keeping on with the, well, I've got it under control. And then, no, you're in the grocery store with vodka. No, you don't have it under control. Um, so it was frustrating. I eventually um, got so sick of it that I, I went to an addiction psychiatrist, and that was very helpful. Um, he helped me understand why my brain became this way. You know, why I became, why alcohol became my default whenever I would feel uncomfortable feelings. And that was a huge help because I always looked at it, even though they tell you it isn't, I kept looking at it as a moral failing. And and somehow I had to be stronger than this. And somehow, you know, why can't I, why can't I just do this? It's so simple that the pros outweigh the cons why can't I just do this? But if I can't do it perfectly, then I'm going to screw it up because I'd rather be a failure than a partial success. You know, I could, that was, that was my thing. I, I was like, I just, I, I don't, I still, like I said, I still don't know why I felt that way about it, that I had to do, if I was going to do recovery, that I had to be so perfect. And if I wasn't perfect, I would sabotage myself. Um, so, that was helpful. Um, I also went to uh, a type of therapy called brain spotting, which is um, not 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 very common, but um, I found it helpful. It it deals with deeply rooted trauma, which obviously mine went back to my mother. Um, I worked through a lot of things with that, and um, it did reduce my my urge to self-medicate over uncomfortable feelings. So I would say that I was making really good progress uh, in the past year 
really being proactive, um, making a new life for myself that included a lot of friends who didn't drink, or if they did drink, they drank in such moderation that, you know, I had no business drinking with them. <laughs> so, um, you know, they would have looked at me like I had two heads. So um, it made it easier, and I, I was doing a pretty good job. And then, um, but again, I still had this, this I don't know, this, this self-loathing, this almost like a disrespect for myself that I just, I, I don't know why. I don't know why. And then um, as I continued to struggle with this and, and try to make sense of it, um, I was taking a shower in late March of this year, and um, I felt a lump in my breast. And I had had a clear mammogram in um, June of, of 17, and I went every year for my mammogram. And um, I found this lump and knew right away that it wasn't normal. Uh, So I went to the doctor about three or four days later, and um, they did a couple of scans, and then they did an ultrasound, and the doctor looked at me and said, this is breast cancer. And um, it was one of those moments where your world sort of goes into a pinhole, (laughs) like you're seeing things like, what? What are you saying to me? And she biopsied it right there, and I got the results two days later and was in a surgeon's office by the next Monday and in my oncologist's office by the next Friday. And um, fortunately, uh, the cancer had not metastasized, meaning it had not moved outside of the breast tissue it hadn't moved to any organs. Um, it, it had stayed local. It was in my breast, and it had moved to uh, three to four lymph nodes, but they were right there by the by the growth. Um, so in that respect, I was fortunate that I caught it because, unfortunately, uh, my type of breast cancer is called triple negative, and it's... Um, it's one of the more rare types of breast cancer. It affects uh, 15 to 20% of women, um, typically under 50. It strikes a lot of women when they are breastfeeding, and they don't know, you know, all those lumps you get and clogged milk ducts. They think they're just clogged milk ducts. And it's, you know, sometimes it's this ugly cancer, which um, spreads rapidly and um, has no targeted therapies. So um, it responds to chemotherapy most of the time. So um, after weeks of tests and scans, and it was confirmed that the cancer had not spread to any other areas, um, I started chemotherapy. Um, I started that in April, about three or four weeks after I was diagnosed. Um, I've lost my hair. (laughs) I'm losing my eyelashes. Um, in October, I'll lose my breasts, uh, and then I undergo radiation. And the weird thing about all of this is it was the first time that I have felt 
real compassion for myself and acceptance. Um, I never could get to that point when I was drinking. Uh, I had that compassion for other women who were alcoholics. I, I could talk to them and, and say, you know, why can't you take care of yourself like you were taking, if you were taking care of me? You know, I'm your friend. If you had to take care of me, what would you do? Oh, well, I would, you know, keep alcohol out of your path, and I would, I would feed you healthy foods, and I would make sure you were getting enough rest, and I would make sure you had clean bedding. And I thought, and I would say to them, well, why can't you do that for yourself? But here I was, not able to do it for myself. And I think a lot of us do that sabotage and especially those of us who are mothers we're so good at taking care of other people but when it comes to us we just you know why aren't we worth it and why you know especially when it comes to the alcohol like why does why does that dictate how we treat ourselves so when i made when i came when this diagnosis came you know i i've i've always been considered attractive <laughs> i had long blonde hair i very busty, <laughs> athletic, and now I've been stripped down to a mole rat, basically. <laughs> you know, I'm, just, I'm bald and uh, about to be flat and I'm kind of scrawny looking. Mm-hmm. But it's been the weirdest thing because I have such tolerance for myself and such love for myself. And I never, I couldn't ever get there before. And here I am in the most vulnerable state. And I'm thinking, wow, if I could have gotten this when I only had alcoholism, what a difference it would have made. It took this truly deadly disease, life-threatening disease, to bring me to this point. And I remember one time being in a, in a meeting and I, I made the observation, I compared alcoholism to cancer. And I said, you know, it really doesn't matter what, because I, I guess I was considered when I went into meetings, I was probably a stage one or two alcoholic. You know, if you're looking at staging the way you do with cancer, that's probably one, you know, one or two. I could have probably stayed out for a little longer and pulled it off. But okay, I have know, to laugh at that. I know, like I, it's like being a little bit pregnant. Not. But go on. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, but in my mind, I was like, ah, you know, I haven't done that yet. And it's kind of like with cancer. Oh, it's not my liver. No, but with me anymore, you know. But I remember saying in the meetings, you know, I I can relate alcoholism to cancer. This was years ago, because whether you're stage one or stage you have to go in and treat it aggressively or it's going to kill you, you know? So whether you're there saying, you know what, I'm drinking a bottle of wine every night and I'm kind of blacking out, or you're saying, you know, I'm drinking a fifth of whiskey every day and I, I don't know what's going on in my world and, you know, my kids are dirty and, you know, it doesn't matter what stage you're in. You have to treat it. And, and it seems so simple at the time because, if you had stage one cancer and went to the doctor said you have stage one cancer, what are you going to do? Oh, I'm just going to wait. <laughs> wait until it gets to stage two or three or, I don't know, maybe when it gets in my bones. You know, like, it seems so insane that, that, we, don't, that we don't view it the same way. I mean, when, when I was told that I had cancer, it was like, you know, all bets were off. 
the game was on. Let's see, what can we do? What are we going to fight this with? We're going to do this. We, you know, consulted with the best doctors, got the best treatment. I've got, I've got the best medicine that I can possibly get to not only get rid of this cancer, which thank God it is responding and my tumor has basically melted. Um, but I have a long road ahead of me. And um, unfortunately, with triple negative, there is a higher rate of occurrence. Um, so, you know, I won't feel out of the woods for a while, but I am grateful that it's responding. Um, but, you know, it just got me thinking a lot about why, why, why is there, sh- there's no shame attached to me having cancer. You know, I found out that I have the BRCA1 mutation. I was born with a 70 to 80% of chance of developing breast cancer. Um, I don't know, even know where it came from. My mother didn't have it. My grandmother didn't. One aunt on my father's side had it. We've got a huge family, but I have it. So I was born this way just like I was probably born to become an alcoholic. <laughs> um, it's just a matter of when and how it shows up and manifests itself. So it just it's it's just made me think a lot and and made me wish that um that if i had had this same compassion for myself when i was only dealing with alcoholism how much how much more effective my recovery would have been and and just how much kinder you know kinder to myself um cutting myself some slack you know because i don't beat myself up now if i've had a bad day after chemo and I'm feeling really down, I don't, I don't try to say, you know, I shouldn't be feeling this way, you, have, you know, like we do with alcoholism, you know, oh, well, you shouldn't be feeling this way. Well, yeah, that's how you feel. <laughs> I have days where I feel really crappy, really physically crappy, emotionally crappy, and I don't force myself out of it. I allow it to to flow through me and then it goes away and I wouldn't allow myself to do that with alcoholism. I would overthink it. I would force, force a conclusion. You know, it has to, I have to be this way. I have to feel this way. And then I never failed. I would sabotage it. You know, I would no more sabotage my cancer treatment than fly to the moon. So why would I do that with alcoholism? But I did. And, um, you know, I just hope that as I move through this, recovery from cancer, um, which, by the way, alcohol is a, a big cause of recurrence. So I would, you know, literally, I'd be really screwing with my odds if I went back to it. So um, that's another thing to consider because I'm sure at some point when I'm done with this treatment that, um, you know, my crazy alcoholic brain will tell me it's it's okay. <laughs> it's okay to try it again or see how it works out this time. But um, thankfully I, I have enough, I have enough real legitimate health risks for drinking that I, that I won't do it. Um, Even though, you know, with alcoholism, we're only gambling with our lives, right? Whether it's um, just the damage we do to our body or risking increase of disease or, you know, falling down the stairs um, or God forbid getting behind the wheel. But even just a simple, you know, I've I've caught a few bruises and corners, <laughs> mm-hmm. unexplained bruises. So, um, you know, we're always risking our lives when we drink. 
um, alcoholically. But um, so that's uh, that's kind of the the epiphany I've had as I have gone bald. <laughs> Yeah, that's really powerful insight, and I, I love how you put that because, you know, one thing we often say about cancer when it comes to recovery is how other people respond to us. People are so supportive and helpful when we have a disease like cancer, but when someone is struggling with alcoholism, they don't always get that kind of support from people. They still get, you know, treated like they have something that's shameful and embarrassing. Yes. And so the, yes. so the way other people treat both diseases is different too, but I, I really think your analogy is powerful is that, you know, we if we find out we have something like cancer, you, you don't mess around. You go deal with it the moment right. you know. Why why do we hang on and, and think that it's okay for alcoholism to progress? So I'm curious, right. Victoria, when you had your diagnosis, were you uh, did you have a period of sobriety at the time when you had your diagnosis, or were you still struggling with trying to quit at that time? No, I I was I was sober at the time. I was, um, but I had this I had a really weird habit, so I wouldn't drink. But if um, if somebody let's say I went to a dinner and somebody was drinking a glass of wine, I would have a sip of wine. <laughs> That's all I would have. And I don't know why I would do that. Mm. It was almost like let me just let me just put my finger in the fire for a second because I don't want to be too perfect. And so you were still doing that self sabotage thing that you talked about, where you just yes, yes, you just but wouldn't I was not, stay I was completely not. abstinent. Just boy, you're a strong-willed exactly. girl, aren't you? <laughs> you're I, stubborn. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I am very stubborn. I hope it. I hope it comes to my to my to my aid right now because <laughs> I got to fight through this thing but yeah it's you know and again I could I don't know I could probably spend a couple thousand dollars with a psychologist trying to figure out what it is in me that felt the need to do that you know um I don't feel that different how is it different now since you have um been diagnosed and been treating this breast cancer what's your relationship with uh, alcohol like now well you know I I look at it as as poison and it's always been poison for me it's not poison for everybody but now i truly see that that it is poison for me and and again it comes back to this change of heart i've had about myself if 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 i had a friend who had this condition would i give her a sip of wine no you know would i i mean would you put a cigarette in a cancer patient's mouth? No. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, so why yeah. would I why would I do anything to myself now that could possibly lead to further harm? Mm-hmm. And and I didn't have that component before. And I don't know I don't know why and I think a lot of us have that. You know, why aren't I worth doing the absolute best I can for myself? Why am I not worth that? When I would do it for a friend I would do it for a child. I would do it for my spouse. I would do it for anybody who was struggling. Why won't I do the same for myself? And I, I, it didn't click until I got cancer. Now, for the first time, I'm putting myself, my well-being, in front of everything else. And everyone, everyone is really glad that I'm doing that. 
you know, just like they would have been really glad if I had done that with alcohol, if I had just said, you know, and, and they're proud of my efforts, but it could have been more successful, you know. Um, but everyone is actually okay with it. It doesn't come off as selfish. It doesn't come off as, um, it's just self-care. And and for the first time, I feel really okay about about doing it and doing it properly. You know, you mentioned the um, the part of your motivation to to stay away from alcohol going forward is the recurrence of the disease, mm-hmm. and um, I think that we so underestimate the impact of drinking, especially daily drinking, or, you know, even if it's not a lot, like just what's Mm -hmm. considered moderate consumption um, on the elevation of cancer risks, never mind when we go up into um, the the higher risk and the heavy drinking category, which feels normal to us when we're in active addiction, you know, oh, three fish bowls of wine a day, yeah, that's what I have, but I'm never drunk, you know, (laughs) that's the lies we tell ourselves. Um, how hard that is on the body. And I don't know if you're aware of this. I was just trying to Google and see if I could find the press release on my phone, but of course I can't find it here. But I'm in Canada, and mm-hmm. and here there was um, an announcement made that um, according to... Um, the you know the health department of the Canadian government, they they announced that there is no amount of alcohol is considered a healthy amount when it comes to your risk of cancer, and that that yes. was like that's the farthest I think anybody's really gone in saying that is that you know because before they were like one drink a day is good for you or something like that, but they're actually now <gasps> saying no. <laughs> No, yeah, no amount is good. No amount is not only is no, no amount good, no amount is safe. Um, and uh, and so it, I feel like we don't talk about that enough. And, uh, no, and I'm glad we don't. you are. We don't. Um, my doctor, my oncologist, sorry, I have two dogs. My oncologist gave me a report um, from the, oh, shoot, I have it here in front of me. Oh, let me see. Um, moderate alcohol intake and cancer incidence in women. And, um, you know, they're doing more research on it, but there is a definite link between moderate alcohol use and cancer. Um, you know, I don't know if I, I don't know if I contributed to my breast cancer. I don't, maybe I did. You know, I have the BRCA1 gene, but, but I also drank more than I should have for a lot of years. Right. So mm-hmm. who knows? I don't know. Right. And and the way, again, um, I've heard this on your podcast before about the um, the culture of women now and the drinking and all the marketing and, you know, mo- all these cups and shirts and it's ridiculous. It's so accepted. Um, yeah. And I see, you know, my, my uh, older daughter came to visit me. I have a daughter who's of legal age, and she would drink wine at night. Just, you know, hey, I'm going to have wine. Well, why? Just their yeah. condition to do it, you know? Right. And and I'm just, it's it's interesting. But um, my doctor, there's something in here. It says that um, alcohol is actually considered a class one carcinogen mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the report that I read. 
So um, I think that we are fooling ourselves uh, about if it's, it may not cause, you know, your liver enzymes might be okay, <laughs> your heart might be okay, but you could be contributing to your risk. And I think that, you know, that's an important thing to, to consider. Um, and if it, if it keeps someone from, if it, if it enhances someone's chances of sobriety, then, then that's great. You know, sometimes it's just that fear that, you know, because all I ever thought about was, well, I'm not drinking enough to mess up my liver. I'm not drinking enough to get pancreatitis. I'm, you know, I'm okay. Sometimes I get a little heartburn, but I never considered that I could be my risk of any cancers. Never thought about that. Right. Yeah. And yet I bet you wear sunscreen. (laughs) I am, I am diligent with my sunscreen. I drink green juice, I exercise, I do all the right. I actually like kale. That's what I told my doctor when I was diagnosed. I'm like, wait, I actually eat kale because I like it. Like, this can't be, what? This makes no sense. You know, but um, cancer doesn't care. Cancer, you know, cancer this does is true. not care. Yeah. And especially, um, you know, with the with the BRCA1 or 2 mutation, it's just the odds are really stacked against you. But, um, but again, I'll never know if, if drinking had any had any impact on my odds, but what I do know is that it that it will have an impact on my odds of long term uh, health. I know that now, so that changes that changes the picture a lot. You know, we're not talking about something today is liver damage. Um, we're talking about recurrence of breast cancer, and and it is proven that if you drink you increase your odds of recurrence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I like myself want, too much now to do that. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about that, about how you're feeling about yourself, because you touched on the physical changes that you're going through right now and how a lot of the outward appearances that were your identity for yourself and for others are, are being taken away one by one, at least temporarily, mm-hmm. and some, some um, the, the temporary might be longer. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you have reconstructive surgery, if that's possible or not, but just just the sort of stripping down, and I I feel like I feel like in a way your um, your treatment for cancer is like an extreme um, uh, illumination or a, a projection, an extreme projection of what we go through in recovering from alcoholism or from addiction mm-hmm. or from any of those big changes because we have to sort of strip away all the things we thought were true yeah. and we thought were important and we yes. thought protected us from the world and really Absolutely. be able to look ourselves in the eye. And mm-hmm. and when we talk about, you you also talked about being a person who has anxiety. And uh, I know for me, uh, one thing that gave me anxiety was being alone with myself <laughs> Mm-hmm. And really mm-hmm. being exposed for um, mm-hmm. for all the things that you know, all the flaws that I think I have that I try to hide with clothes and hair and makeup and perfection yep. and decorating yep. and flowers and all of yeah. that. Uh-huh. So tell me about the intersection of those two things for you, and how's your anxiety doing in the face of this this time in your life, and what does that feel like right now? Um. So. When when I was diagnosed and and I learned that uh, my treatment was not going to include any any shortcuts, <laughs> um, 
you know, I, I was I was already coming to terms with with aging a little bit. I I, I looked very young for my age, um, but you know, I was forty seven. Hey, <laughs> I was forty seven and starting to go through perimenopause and and you know, just kind of coming to terms with the fact that I'm not that hot young thing anymore. Like, okay, well, I'm just getting a little bit older, and and that's okay. You know, um, that's okay. I'm 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 okay with that. I'm I'm healthy. I'm aging gracefully. I look I look good for for 47. I don't look 25, but I don't want to be 25 anymore. <laughs> right, I hey. understand that. Yeah. Um, that being said, uh, you know, when your hair starts falling out in clumps one day, and you have to shave it, and your face is totally exposed. Um, you're so sick that, you know, you, you, you can't even pretend anymore. There's no pretending. You know, I, I, I think that's part of it is, is the mask just come off because you just, you're just trying to get through the day. You're just sick. You know, there's no time to think about what people are seeing or if they're judging or there's not even time to judge yourself. You're just trying to get through the day. Mm. And, you know, just a lot of the things that used to go through my head don't go through my head anymore because I need my energy to just live through this because chemotherapy is, it's it's even harder than I thought, and I've I've had a lot of knee surgeries. I've given birth four times. I'm I'm no lightweight, but it's really hard. Um, so in those alone moments when I wake up in the middle of the night and I go to the bathroom and I see my bald head and kind of hollow-looking eyes now because my eyelashes are falling out, and um, I just think. Um, just look at myself and say, "You're a tough, you're a tough cookie." Yeah. You know, this is you, you got it. You can't give up. You have to keep going, and and that's what I do. You know, that's what I do, and um, it's yeah, it's different. There's there's no there's no there's no facade anymore. I'm 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 exposed. And as far as the anxiety, um I mean when I was first diagnosed, you can imagine the anxiety was off the charts. Um I've I I pray a lot. Um I'm actually starting up with a meditation teacher to learn to meditate. Um something I've always wanted to do and never taken the time to do. Um because I was probably getting my hair colored. Um, <laughs> I have lots more time. You know, you have lots of time. Um, so, yeah, the anxiety, I, I'm trying to, when when it comes and it does come, um, I've learned that, you know, fear and faith can't exist in the same space. So when fear comes in, I, I do, I just try to, turn it over and I realize it's bigger than me. It's not something I can control. And, um, you know, I turn it over to, to my God. 
Um, and I also uh, take a deep breath and I say, at this moment, everything is okay. Because at this moment, everything is okay. I am okay. I am sick because I'm going through chemotherapy. I am not sick because of cancer. You know, it's almost like an addiction. You know, you, you, you sometimes you're sick. You have to go through that, that process, you know, when you're weaning yourself physically and psychologically off of alcohol. You have to, you know, it kind of makes you sick in some ways. Um, but you're not sick from the alcohol anymore. You're not sick because you put poison in your body. You're not vomiting. You're not, you know, and, and that's one thing I have said is that, you know, my worst day after chemo is still probably not as bad as my worst hangover. <laughs> so I've got that going for me. Um, it's, uh, yeah. Our conversation is taking my breath away, Victoria. I have to, uh, I have to confess that you are painting a very vivid and real picture. And, um, uh, I, I'm really, I feel like I'm right there with you, even though we haven't met in person. Um, and I'm really, really grateful that you're being so vulnerable and honest and, um, allowing us to, to join you in this moment of your life. And, showing us um, how strong we can be. And I mean, it's one thing we're telling people all the time, you're stronger than you know, you're stronger than you'd ever believe. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I think we sometimes have to be forced. I mean, that's where I think the idea of rock bottom comes from, is that we don't always know how strong we are until we're forced to endure, you know, the worst thing we can imagine. And sometimes yes. for people that's rock bottom, and and sometimes you know rock bottom is preempted by something like this, where mm-hmm. um, you may have been spared a rock bottom from alcoholism, you're mm-hmm. facing it in another form instead, and exactly. um, that you that you've chosen to um, to I mean you you contacted me and said I I think my story might help somebody, and I'm so grateful you did because um, it. it you're impacting me profoundly just listening to it, and I I know this will have a profound effect on our listeners. So I just I just have to pause and expect my express my gratitude because um, I know you're going through a lot right now, and the fact that you you know you're you're feeling good today. You could be out laying on the grass, looking at the clouds, and celebrating <laughs> how you're feeling, and you've taken an hour to spend um, with the Bubble Hour community, and so I, I just think that speaks to the kind of person that you are. And, um, oh, thank you. Yeah, so I we have a few minutes left, and there's a couple of things you mentioned that I want to make sure we go back and and touch on because they, they were things that are new to me. Um, one is brain spotting, and I just wonder if you could explain to me what that therapy is and how it works. Okay. Um, well, it's um, it's done by a doctor, and my uh, addiction psychiatrist was actually the one who suggested it because um, one day in his office I said, you know, we're, we're working through all of this through talk therapy, and I said, but I still, I feel like I'm just hitting a wall, you know, with this, there's trauma there that I just, for some reason, I can talk about it till I'm blue in the face, and it's, I'm still resorting to my default behaviors. You know, um, what is it? What do I need? And he said, you know, I want you to try this brain spotting. So I went to this woman and, um, gosh, 
basically, I mean, you can look it up. It sounds kind of new agey and weird, but for me, it was a game changer. Um, the woman uh, has, she uses like a spotter, uh, like a little beam of light or a little pencil or something, and you follow it, and then your eyes, she, she'll bring up a, a topic, okay? So for me, it could be something about my mother um, or my divorce, um, the impact on my children, something like that. And you kind of, if, you, if you're aware of yourself when you're thinking about a topic, you know, our eyes kind of wander around as we recall things and start to feel things. And what happens with the brain spotting is your, your eyes eventually will rest on one spot. And according to what they say about the brain spotting, that accesses the deep parts of our brain where we store trauma. And the therapist just sort of sits there and gives you gentle prompts um, of what this feels like and, and what are you, what, you know, what's going on, what are you remembering, what are you, so, and it's almost like you, you relive the trauma but without quite all the drama. <laughs> Um, it can get emotional. Uh, I would sometimes feel flustered. I would cry or I would uh, just feel uh, jittery. Um, but then, it, so the theory is that the trauma moves somatically through your body and that it kind of leaves your brain, if that makes sense. And I know it sounds kind of weird. It sounded weird to me. And if, if, if such a highly renowned psychiatrist hadn't referred me, I would have thought it was foo-foo, but um, I went, and it made a big difference for me. It it stopped a lot of obsessive thinking. Um, it stopped uh, suddenly when I would feel anxiety or upset. Um, I, didn't, I didn't automatically think about alcohol, and that hadn't happened even with extended periods of recovery. It was still a battle. You know, I'd think about it, and I'd try to push the thought out. No, 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 I can't drink over this. No, 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 you know. Um, it was the first time that I could um, experience something and not have that default happen automatically. So for me, it helped. You explain it very well, and it sounds quite similar to EMDR, which is eye movement. Yes, it is similar. Eye movement, desensitization, yeah. something. Uh, <laughs> yes, it and is, we have it is uh, similar. and reprocessing. Uh, so I just quickly yes. looked up what the similarities are, um, and it says they're both they're both techniques to help reprocess information. Both help you mm -hmm. access information stored in the amyg amygdala. Um, both amygdala, use yeah. What, both use what's called the bilateral stimulation. Yeah, and, uh, yes, and they can both mm -hmm. be slowed down. But there are some differences. EMDR is much more specific and doesn't work for everyone because it can be overstimulating for some, whereas brain spotting is a little gentler and has sort of a wider application. So, um, oh, interesting. Yeah, so I, it's part of a it's sort of a part of a new, a new um, and very rapidly growing treatment. Um, I'd never heard of it before, so I was googling as you were talking because. Mm -hmm. um, I thought this is great. Um, the more tools that we can that we can get uh, in our pockets, oh, the, the better. Um, Recovering so from really... trauma and, and addiction is is evolving, and I think it's important to to just be aware and be open to lots of things. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, mm -hmm. and um, 
our 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 whole deal here is is you know your the bubble hour is about putting a bubble around you and filling it with tools to help yourself <laughs> sort of interact with the world with all your your toolkit inside your bubble and um mm-hmm. and um the more the more you know the more you can you can go and ask for and try and and yes. learn about so it's fantastic um yes. our hour is is drawing to a close here and okay. i could, I could talk to you for another three hours because I do have a lot of questions <laughs> for you. Um, okay. But uh, in the moments we have left, I guess what I, I want to ask is just um, if you have a word of encouragement for somebody who's listening today who's who's struggling with a chronic health issue of any kind or struggling to find the courage to day one or just to get the day one without alcohol or just generally struggling. Um, I'm just wondering if you have any final words of encouragement for our listeners today. Hmm. Um, you know, I keep going back to uh, what would you do for a friend who's in the same situation? Because in my experience, people who struggle with addiction are some of the kindest, most compassionate individuals. And that's, part of our struggle, you know, is, is we're, it's like we're born with our skin inside out. We're so sensitive. Um, and we would jump through all sorts of hoops to help somebody else. So uh, I think my word of, of advice is maybe just for one day, um, treat yourself the way you would treat a friend in the same distress as you're in right now and see how it goes. That. Yeah, I love that. I think that's great advice. Um, so I want to thank you again from the bottom of my heart for taking the time to come with us. And I'm hoping uh, maybe you'll come back maybe in the new year and give us an update on how you're doing yes. and any new insights that you've gotten and how you're feeling um, you know, regarding your recovery from, from both cancer and alcohol addiction mm-hmm. and because uh, okay. I know our listeners will be waiting for an update for you. So let's make a date for the new year to talk again. Oh, thank you. I would love that. <laughs> I'm gonna be in uh I'm gonna be in good shape by then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we'll have a celebration. I'm already Victory oh, Victory Party. <laughs> <laughs> Victoria's victory. Yep. And it occurs yeah. to me, um, I, I very often hear from listeners who have been touched by something they've heard or wanting to express their gratitude to someone um that they've heard on the mm-hmm. bubble hour. So I'm going to ask our listeners, knowing, Victoria, that you've got your surgery ahead of you and, and more chemo and radiation and and um, a, a tough – there's going to be tough days ahead. You know that. You're a tough girl and you're yes. going to face them. But um, I just want to let our listeners know that if you want to send a word of encouragement to Victoria, um, my sister's a cancer survivor, and I can tell you that um, I brought a basket of letters that people had sent to encourage her and would sit on her bed in the hospital. She was getting chemo and read letters from strangers to her. And um, so I know what a difference those messages make. So I'm going to ask our army of Bubble Hour listeners to send you strength and love. And if you email it to me at thebubblehour at gmail.com, I will make sure that Victoria receives your messages. And um, and we're going to just send an army of encouragement to you, Victoria, as you move forward oh, and, so and get better. Thank you so much. Those those words of encouragement really mean a lot. They yeah. uh, definitely get you through the dark moments. I've been blessed, and I appreciate that. 
Yeah, well, we're all in this together, and um, we're we're never alone, Indeed no matter how alone we feel. <laughs> so, that is um, true. So um, I always end by saying, "Take good care," and I just I say it with a lump in my throat because I know you're kind of feeling crappy, and you got another round of chemo coming up. That's going to be yeah. So, <laughs> so take good care and and stay strong. And I just I thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing your story with oh, us. And you're so welcome. Again, listeners, thank you for the opportunity. Oh, my pleasure. <clears throat> Listeners, again, the email address, thebubblehour at gmail.com. Let me know if you have a message for Victoria, and I'll make sure she gets it. And uh, everyone, uh, I'm going to close out our hour right here, right now. Thank you for listening. And until next time, everyone, please take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud that that was me and a little dignity, not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power, weakness head on me. In a dark corner is where shame lies behind. We think you're strong just cause you keep it on the side. Shout it out.